The final vote of the United Nations on the question of the partition of Palestine into an independent Jewish state and an independent Arab state is as follows. 33, 4, 13, against 10, abstention. Even as the Jews celebrated the United Nations vote in favor of partition on November 29, 1947, which you heard here depicted in the 1960 movie Exodus, they knew that come the morning, the time for festivities would be over. It would be time to fight for their lives. The fear was apparent throughout Palestine. The Arabs had promised a war of annihilation if the UN voted to create a Jewish state, and they had the military resources to pull it off. The Jews had their forces too, but with a lot fewer guns and other distinct disadvantages. But they had determination. And they had David Ben-Gurion. Through it all, Ben-Gurion held firm as the indisputable political and military leader of the Jewish community. He gave an order. The Jews would not retreat from even one inch of the land they were given by the United Nations. No matter what it took, no matter where, man or woman, young or old, they would hold the line. At the knife's edge of an achievement 2,000 years in the making, the best weapon they had, he knew, was their courage to survive. Welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. The six months between the UN vote for partition in November of 1947 and the establishment of Israel in May of 1948 can best be understood as a Palestinian civil war. That is, a civil war between the Jews of Palestine and the Arabs of Palestine, neighbor against neighbor. The Arab states were involved, but not directly. There was no invasion until after Israel was created. As civil wars tend to be, this one too was cruel, and the Jews spent most of it losing. They lacked the strength. Only several thousand of the Haganah's fighters were trained well enough for military combat, and they were badly hurting for weapons. Ben-Gurion wanted tanks and airplanes, but the Yishuv thought he was crazy. How are the Jews possibly going to get heavy weapons into Palestine, right under the eyes of the British, and let alone buy them in the first place? The Jews were also struggling to organize. Ben-Gurion was desperately trying to corral the various defense groups into a unified bloc, while at the same time he was trying to build the necessary political and civil infrastructure to, you know, actually have a nation in six months' time. Quick refresher. The Yishuv had four major defense organizations at this point. The main one was the Haganah, the predecessor to the Israeli army, which was under the control of the Jewish agency, which was headed by Ben-Gurion. They had about 21,000 members, but as I mentioned, only some had the necessary military training and experience. The second one was the Haganah's elite military operations unit, the Palmach, which had a few thousand trained fighters. The third was the Irgun, the Jewish militant group under Menachem Begin, who was still in hiding from the British. They had around 5,000 members, but again, very few trained in actual combat. And the fourth was the Lehi, the terrorist group, with less than 1,000 fighters, that continued attacks on the British and the Arabs. The British announced that they would be ending the mandate and leaving Palestine at midnight on May 14, 1948, 
Looking back, we see a clear line between the vote for partition and the establishment of Israel, but back then, it wasn't so obvious. One of Ben-Gurion's greatest achievements was in being able to see, where others could not, what was happening. He understood that the civil war in Palestine would morph into an actual war of invasion with multiple Arab countries as soon as the Jewish state would be established. The civil war would turn into a war for existence. And he also understood that this would happen the second that the mandate ended. Most people thought that the Jewish state was still some years away. The Jews' weakness and strength and organization were compounded by the strategic disadvantage of geography. The United Nations partition map of Jewish territory was less a continuous block of territory than a sprawl of Jewish settlements, especially in the north and around Jerusalem. Small Jewish villages in Kibbutzim were surrounded by hostile Arabs and were particularly vulnerable to being cut off. So Ben-Gurion had two challenges. Defend the territory the Jews already had, while also preparing for a full-scale war with the Arabs that he knew was coming. But he had no time to prepare, because everything was in an emergency. The Arabs had promised to massacre the Jews if partition was successful, and starting the very next day after the UN vote, they began making good on that threat. They attacked an ambulance in Jerusalem and a bus outside Tel Aviv. Nearly 10 Jews were killed that first day. The Arab Higher Committee, led by Amin al-Husseini, declared a general strike at the beginning of December, opening up a wave of assaults on the Jews in Jerusalem that spread into far-flung villages throughout Palestine. Especially unsafe were the roads, where Arab snipers and guerrilla squads relentlessly attacked any identifiable Jewish vehicles driving along. In doing so, the Arabs were able to cut off the more isolated settlements, preventing communication, supplies, and defense forces from reaching those Jews. Haifa featured prominently at the beginning of the Civil War. Although it was a city where Jews and Arabs managed to live together coldly but peacefully, the calm there was shattered by sporadic Arab attacks, and then, on December 30th, 1947, by an Irgun attack on the Haifa oil refinery. Throwing bombs into a crowd of Arab workers, the Irgun killed six and wounded dozens more. In retaliation, Arabs broke into the refinery later that same day and murdered 39 Jews. Although the Jewish agency condemned the Irgun for the attack, it authorized the Haganah to retaliate the next day. They attacked the nearby Palestinian village of Balad al-Sheikh, killing several dozen. Still, the Arab League noted that the Jews were not attacking Arab villages unless those villages attacked them first. But the Irgun and the Lehi were still active, and the Haganah was beginning to rethink its policy of restraint. Most of the attacking was initiated from the Arabs, and they were not at all above acts of terrorism either. In February 1948, the Palestinians, with the help of British deserters, exploded several car bombs on Ben Yehuda Street in Jerusalem. 58 Jews were killed, nearly all of them civilians. Ben-Gurion was trying to turn the Haganah into a full-fledged fighting force, but they were still primarily a defensive organization. They were scattered all over Palestine in small groups, trying to defend Jewish territory and unable to mount a coordinated offense. By the beginning of 1948, Around 1,000 Arabs, 700 Jews, and 100 British soldiers had been killed in just the last six weeks or so. Things were grim. It's a <laughs>
In addition to massacring the Jews of Palestine, the Arabs had also threatened to attack Jewish communities throughout the Middle East. They followed through. Three days after the UN vote, Arabs rioted in the port city of Aden, which today is in Yemen, but back then was a British protectorate. The Arabs rampaged in the Jewish quarter, destroying every business, burning synagogues and schools, and killing Jews with any available weapon they could find. The Jews fought back with rocks and homemade Molotov cocktails. The British sent in a trained unit of Bedouin fighters to stop the violence, but the Bedouin instead turned their guns on the Jews. Snipers shot children running from their homes. Everyone was a target. In three days of violence, 87 Jews were killed, the Jewish quarter was destroyed, and a thousand years of Adeni Jewish history came crashing down. Those few Jews who remained were gone after 1967. There's not a single Jew left in Aden today. There were similar stories all over the Middle East, from Syria to Iraq. Meanwhile, the Arab states were egging on the civil war in Palestine. Neither the Palestinians nor the Jews were each strong enough, probably, to defeat the other. And most people on both sides just wanted the violence to end. But that's not what the Arab states wanted. So they sent thousands of volunteer fighters from Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, and Iraq to form what was called the Arab Liberation Army. Together with Amin al-Husseini's Palestinian fighters, they put enormous pressure on the Jewish defense. And in this, the Arabs had another source of help. The British. The British were still technically in charge of Palestine until the mandate ended, but they all but refused to cooperate with the United Nations on preparing for the transition. They kept in place the White Paper's restrictions on Jewish immigration, blocked the Jews from importing weapons, and refused to officially sanction the Haganah as a legitimate military organization. This meant that a Haganah fighter, on his way to defending a Jewish settlement, could be stopped by the British, disarmed, and either arrested or sent back the way he came. At the same time, the British were happy to sell weapons and ammunition to their Arab allies. Crucially, too, as the British army and police began evacuating strategic positions, they would let the Arabs come occupy them. The local British commander would call up the local Arab militia leader and say, Hey there, we're getting ready to leave our fort and leaving behind a bunch of ammunition and some weapons. Come and get it before the Jews get here. And by the way, this isn't an accusation I'm making. This was done more or less openly and obviously. If you've been to the city of Sfat up in the north, which you probably have on your birthright trip, you may have seen this without realizing it. In January of 1948, there were about 1,700 Jews and 12,000 Arabs living in Sfat. At the beginning of the year, the Arabs attacked the Jewish quarter, cornering the Jews in a siege that lasted for months. They blew up house after house as they slowly boxed the Jews into an ever tighter, more desperate situation. The British did not intervene to stop the Arabs or to protect the Jews. Instead, they watched the siege unfold from their police fort at the top of the main staircase in town. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. It's directly above the artist's alleyway. When they evacuated in April, they literally handed over this super strategic fortress to the Arabs, allowing them a key advantage in continuing to attack the Jewish quarter. You may have noticed that the building today remains covered in bullet holes, remnants of the desperate fight to retake the station in the city. So why would the British do this? Well, two reasons. One is the same geopolitics as always. They wanted to keep the Arabs happy and preserve Britain's economic interests and influence in the Middle East. 
The British were not so secretly hoping that the whole partition scheme would fall apart, that the UN would turn the whole thing back over to the British, and that the British would promise the Arabs to end once and for all any effort to allow a Jewish homeland. The other reason is that the Irgun and Lehi's campaign of terrorism against the British mandate had left lasting bitterness. Nearly 130 British soldiers and police had been killed by the Jewish groups between 1945 and 1947, and the Haganah had embarrassed the British before the whole world with their Aliyah Bet operation, especially that episode with the Exodus ship. So the British were determined to do absolutely nothing to help the Jews, and even, where possible, to work against them. So thanks to British help and the huge influx of Arab fighters, the Palestinians were able to cut off the Jews from one another. Haifa was isolated from the Galilee, the roads between Tiberias and the rest of the north were blocked, and small settlements in the Negev desert were cut off. Worst of all, however, was Jerusalem. Passenger trains have ceased to serve Jerusalem. Goods trains are under fire from snipers. Primitive cowcatchers provide a poor defense against rail-planted bombs. Road transport moves behind an armor of steel plating, and only convoys with armed escort can hope to reach their destinations unmolested. As you drive along the main highway from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem today, which should take about 45 minutes, but actually takes about 17 hours as you sit in Israeli traffic, you will notice here and there old military vehicles that have been burned and mangled and otherwise left seemingly randomly on the side of the road. Those aren't traffic accidents that have never been cleared. They are original vehicles that form part of an extended memorial to the prolonged and bloody fight for Jerusalem in 1947 and 48. 100,000 Jews were living in Jerusalem when the UN voted for partition in November of 1947. The plan was for Jerusalem to be an international city under the control of the United Nations. Despite the underlying tensions between Jews and Muslims in this most important city, they tended to get along well with each other over the years, especially as neighbors in the close confines of the old city. To reach Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, much of the highway passed through Arab territory, and the Arabs quickly made the road all but impassable. Those vehicles you see along the highway were part of the convoys the Jews tried to send to Jerusalem with food, water, and humanitarian supplies. These convoys were essential all over Palestine. Since the Jews didn't have airplanes, they had to rely on trucks to get supplies and fighters and weapons from one place to another. One of our warrior gods, but from episode 47, the young Palmach commander Yitzhak Rabin, was in charge of keeping the highway open. The Arabs relentlessly attacked the convoys on the road to Jerusalem, shooting at them, planting mines, setting ambushes. They managed to cut the road off in several places. As the civil war went on, fewer and fewer trucks got through, and more and more lives were lost trying to protect them. By March of 1948, the Siege of Jerusalem, as it was called, was having success in literally starving the Jews out. Food rationing was imposed then water. Children were sent out into the fields just outside of town to search for edible plants. Although the Jewish quarter of the old city had only about 1,700 Jews living there, it was of huge symbolic importance, so both the Jews and the Arabs were desperate to capture it. Adding to the Jews' vulnerability was the fact that they didn't control the territory around Jerusalem, or even around the Jewish quarter of the old city. And that's why the siege was so effective, the Jews had trouble reaching Jerusalem. South of the city was a cluster of kibbutzim called Gush Etzion, 
strategically placed within fairly easy reach of Jerusalem. It had been blockaded by the Arabs, the Jews cut off from any relief. The Haganah sent several convoys to try to reach Gush Etzion, but none were successful. In what became one of the most symbolic operations of the Civil War, demonstrating the Jews' courage and grit in the face of impossible odds, the Haganah in mid-January 1948 sent 35 fighters to sneak into Gush Etzion in the middle of the night. Traveling overnight through difficult terrain, they were a bit late in arriving. Dawn had come. Two Arab women tending sheep spotted the fighters and alerted the nearby Arab village. Hundreds of Arabs swarmed the Jews in a desperate battle that lasted for hours. All the Jews were killed, their bodies mutilated. Only 23 could later be positively identified. They became known as the Convoy of 35 and were amongst the first soldiers buried at Mount Herzl, Jerusalem's national military cemetery. Their deaths were a huge blow to morale. The Gush Etzion block later fell completely under Arab attack. So the situation was intolerable. The Jews were losing, and partition hung by a thread. The United States was making noises about changing the whole scheme. The State Department let it leak that they thought partition wouldn't work, that the United States wouldn't support a solution that could only be won by force. And then it might be better now to postpone Resolution 181, the partition resolution. They even suggested that the U.S. would support armed intervention by the U.N. to force peace, but not to support the creation of the Jewish state. But President Truman assured my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman, that he and the United States would stand by partition. But with the British mandate ending in just two months, and the Jews facing a desperate fight, it was far from clear what all would happen in Palestine. Everyone seemed to be waiting to see if the Jews could actually hold out. Meanwhile, the Palestinian exodus had begun. Ghassan Kanafani was 12 years old when his family left Akko, a city just north of Haifa, bound even further north to Lebanon. He recalled having only a vague sense of the fighting that was the reason for his family fleeing, but he remembered the sensations and the emotions of watching his home and his homeland fade away. In a famous short story he later wrote called Jaffa, Land of Oranges, he wrote that the vehicle they were traveling in suddenly stopped. The women, he wrote, including his mother and several relatives, they went over to an orange vendor sitting by the wayside. As the women walked back with the oranges, the sounds of their sobs reached us. Only then did oranges seem to me something dear, that each of these big, clean fruits was something to be cherished. Ghassan watched as his father took an orange, gazed at it silently, then began to weep like a helpless child. The story concludes with the heartbreaking line, when in the afternoon we reached Sidon, Lebanon, we had become refugees. It was a transformation that became central to the Palestinian identity today. Ghassan Kanafani was one of the great writers of Palestinian literature, particularly of the emotional and psychological impact that this moment had on the ordinary Palestinians who suddenly became refugees. 
It's an intense controversy that plagues Israel-Arab relations to this day, and there are a lot of competing narratives over just what happened. And each narrative has its own obfuscations and contradictions, and this being the Middle East, you can find yourself simultaneously sympathetic and not. In Lebanon, Ghassan Kanafani grew up to also serve as a senior leader of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, a terrorist group that in 1972 staged a massacre at what is today's Ben-Gurion Airport in Israel, killing 26 people. A few months afterwards, Kanafani was assassinated by an Israeli car bomb. So we ask the question, how did the Palestinians become refugees from Palestine and why? And whose fault was it? There is no one answer. The main reason the Palestinians began leaving at this time was, well, fear. In war, civilians are terrified and terrorized. And some of that was due to the Jews' actions. The Jews did expel Palestinians in certain places and did commit terrible atrocities, even more rarely. I'll be talking about that next time. But it was also the case that the fear was exaggerated and encouraged by other Arab countries that saw the propaganda value of making the Jews seem uniformly cruel and brutal, of terrifying the local Arab populations against them. The reality is that many Arabs were offered the opportunity to stay and to become a part of the coming Jewish state, though as a minority with equal rights. Tens of thousands of Arabs chose that route and remain a part of Israeli society today, but of course many more did not want to live under Jewish control. So with fighting raging all around them and also facing local economic collapse, many Palestinians understandably chose to leave for other Arab countries. Few thought the situation would be permanent. They expected, and their leaders promised them, that the Jews would soon be defeated and the Palestinians would be able to return. Elsewhere, Palestinians left at the urging or even the force of the Arabs themselves. The Arab Liberation Army expelled entire Palestinian villages that set close to Jewish targets so that those villages could be used as forward operating bases. The first to leave in the early stages of the Civil War were those who could afford to, generally middle and upper class families in Jaffa, Jerusalem, and Haifa. Local Palestinian leaders also sent their families out, and tens of thousands more tried to follow their lead. Many made it to the surrounding Arab countries, but soon the Arab higher command began denying visas except for the sick, elderly women and children. So tens of thousands of Palestinians were displaced within Palestine, trying to get farther away from fighting that kept creeping closer. So, some refugees were created when the Jews expelled them from strategic territory. Some were created when their own Arab leaders ordered them to leave. The majority were created because they left voluntarily but not willingly forced to by the terrifying circumstances around them over which they had no control. In all, some 250 to 300,000 Palestinians became refugees during the Civil War. And as with the refugee crisis, everything about the Palestinian Civil War was chaotic. Arab attacks were largely disorganized and not part of a cohesive strategic military effort beyond fighting the Jews wherever they could. The Jewish defense was also messy, the Haganah bouncing from one desperate siege to the next, trying to keep the roads open. Jewish communities supplied and fighters equipped. The politics were all a mess. The United Nations had passed a resolution but was doing almost nothing to ensure its enforcement, leaving the Jews and the Arabs to battle it out. The British were likewise not being helpful in preparing an orderly and peaceful transition. Thousands of civilians were being killed in Palestine. Jews in other parts of the Middle East were being murdered. Arabs in Palestine were fleeing, whether forced to or not. 
It was an open question how all this would end. The Jewish state hadn't yet been declared. And as David Ben-Gurion knew, the Arab states hadn't yet invaded. But that would come. David Ben-Gurion himself, and nearly every historian who I've read, considered his most difficult decisions, amongst the many decisions that he made, declaring the state of Israel ranked pretty near the top. But it wasn't the top top. The top top would have been credited as his single biggest gamble, his boldest decision, his Hail Moses pass, if you will, was the decision for the Haganah to go on the offensive. Where Ben-Gurion had initially ordered everyone to stand their ground and not retreat, he now ordered the Jewish forces to consolidate the territory granted by the UN by pushing the Arabs back. Back from Haifa and Jaffa and Sfat, back from the main roads connecting Jewish communities, back from the siege of Jerusalem, back. If the Jews were going to declare a state, Ben-Gurion knew, they would need something approaching defensible borders to do it. Spoiler alert! The plan was a tremendous success, but it came at great cost and had lasting consequences. Many countries have learned that it's possible to have both your finest hour and your worst at the same time. The future Jewish state was also about to get that lesson. That's next time. See you later. Simonu